Today's scripture is coming from John 19, verses 14 through 18. And the Bible reads, Now it was with the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be sacrificed. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called Place of a Skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golothia, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Good morning, everyone. So glad to see everyone here this morning. Thank you for being with us. Our members for being so faithful in their attendance. We hope to see you this afternoon and also on Wednesday to impart in our Wednesday night summer series, but also a special warm welcome for our visitors. Seeing quite a few of you this morning, and we are thankful for your presence as well, and we hope that you can return at every opportunity that you have. This morning's message, I want to be very clear that we're going to be talking about salvation. And you might ask yourself, Archie, why do we want to talk about salvation? We talk about that stuff all the time. And this is true. But I believe if you're being honest with yourself and we're being honest here together in this room, most of us would probably presuppose that there seems to be a lot of confusion over what is salvation and who's going to be saved and make it to heaven one day and who's not. I want to venture out and make sure that I answer that question for me this morning, not from my own personal belief system, but from the Bible. And I want to encourage everyone who is here who may not share our precious faith. I want you to be challenged to do so by this message. And if not today, soon. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3 that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but rather is long-suffering. That means he's taking his time over generation after generation after generation, and he's patiently waiting so that all men may come to repentance and thereby be saved. The question is that we have to challenge ourselves with this morning is, when is a person saved? Let me put your minds in this context. Every once in a while, you have someone who finds themselves in between life and death, in between making a decision whether or not they want to go to heaven or they want to go to that place called hell. And the reason why we're challenging that is because we're all mortal and that God created the heavens and the earth and he called into that promise mankind. And at somewhere in the garden, some point in time, man sinned and he fell away from God's almighty grace. He ushered in sin and death into this world. But God being who he is was so faithful that he made us a promise that one day he would send his son to take away death from us, if we so choose. So you might find yourself in between life and death. Some of us, whether we're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, we found ourselves making that decision, what must I do to be saved? How can I go to heaven? Because either for some weird reason I don't want to spend an eternity in hell, or because I'm scared of what that might be, or I just simply don't want to be separated from God, I want to be saved. I think it's a beautiful thing when young ladies like Charzelle start asking that question at her age. And I think it's an even more beautiful thing when we have people who are in their 70s and 80s that take a look at their lives and they say, I'm not where I need to be with God. And I need to fix that. In our sermon this morning, I really want to make sure that we understand that there is a way to be pleasing to God. But there also, unfortunately, is a way to be separated from him eternally. I'm the type of person, brothers and sisters, dear friends, 
I don't desire anybody to be lost. I want everybody to hear the gospel message and obey. But what I realize as a gospel preacher, as a Christian, as a human being, there are those people that are going to listen to the world and there are those people that are going to listen to God and there's a great divide between those two groups and there's nothing that you and I can do except live our lives the way we should according to the Bible and teach what the Bible says. This is a whosoever will gospel. Every person in this room has to make their own choice. And we thank God for that. I appreciate Brother Ramsey this morning reading our text. I appreciate Jerry and his song leading. I appreciate Ben and his prayer and the men that worked on the table. By the way, I might not have said this already, but happy Father's Day to everybody that's there. Turning your Bibles to John 19. In John 19, we're using the text that David read. I want to focus on the last couple of verses, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says, And he, talking about Jesus bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus, who was taken at the beginning of this chapter, they squeezed a crown of thorns on his head and they dressed him in purple and they mocked him and said, here is your king, this man that they did not believe. Even though he came working miracles, wonders, and signs to show that he's approved of God, Acts 2.21, there were still people who saw him and they heard of what he did and they saw the miraculous things. But when they gave him a choice between a robber and the son of God, they said, crucify him, crucify him. I believe in the text of this scripture that we have the exact representation that we have in 2017 of the three classes of people that when it comes to salvation and the Bible encourages us to do what is right so that we might reap heaven for an eternity, there's one group that's going to turn away from God. There's one group that's going to worship God in a way which leads to the second death. And then there's a third group. A group that God is going to call to himself. He's going to send his son one day to be redeemed. Again, it is our choice which group we want to be in. The Bible says clearly that there were two others with Christ. One on either side with Christ in the center. I've entitled my message this morning, The Man in the Middle. It is without a doubt in my mind that the man in the middle is the most important character in this biblical account. But I believe with all of my heart that if we don't study the other two, we can't see the significance of God's plan of salvation. One, brothers and sisters, that he augmented before the beginning of time. It's unchangeable. It's irreversible. It is something that if you and I want to see heaven for an eternity, we must follow his worthy word. I want to begin with the first character. And for lack of a better phrase, we want to call him the reviler. If you've noticed that I put him on the left, the Bible says that Jesus was in the center. He had two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. I know my right and your left is opposite. You see, all bear with me here, but y'all get the understanding, right? We're going to say that this man was on the left. We always talk about in our society sometimes that things on the left are wrong. So we're going to use that image. My left, your right, okay? The man on the left, we're going to call him a reviler. And the reason we're going to call him a reviler is because of his attitude and his actions on the cross. In your Bibles, in Matthew 27, verse 44, the Bible says, Even the robbers who crucified, who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. Why were they reviling our Lord and Master? What was the problem? Was it with Jesus? Was he truly a blasphemer? Was he truly someone who sat up and said something that was false when he claimed to be the son of God? Was that something worthy of being reviled? If we go to Mark's account of this same gospel, in verse 32, the Bible says and gives us some information, let the Christ, the king of Israel, this is what the people were yelling, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Here is the Son of God, 
who showed the works that he was supposed to show, and people still reviled him. Isn't it amazing that we think today in our modern society that we can live a very good life and everybody's going to like us. Everybody's going to be our friend. Here's what I told a friend of mine one time. If it didn't happen to Jesus, why would it happen to you and me? Jesus did no wrong. He lived completely without sin. Let's get further into the account. In Luke's account, Luke 23, verse 39, the Bible says, Then one of the criminals, the one on the left, who were hanged, blasphemed. There it comes. This is how he reviled the Lord and Master, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. I want you to notice the statement here. Here's a man suspended on the cross. He's been condemned to death. Within six or 12 hours, he's going to die. Look what he's asking Jesus. Even though he didn't believe in him, even though he didn't trust in his saving grace through God, he still was sitting up here challenging him with his very last breath, sitting up there saying, if you are the Christ, here's what I want you to do. I need you to give me one more favor. I need you to save yourself. Now, when you save yourself, Brother Williams, I need you to save me also. When you talk about human nature, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice the reviler, the man on the left. This is how most people in the world live their lives. Now, you're sitting up there saying, Archie, that's not me. Well, it may not be you. But what I'm telling you is, in a society like we have, the majority of the people live their life in direct opposite of what God has instructed us to do according to his will. Even if they're in a religious situation like we are this morning, many of us will hear the word of God and we will make a claim to honor Jesus as our king, God as our father in heaven, but we will still live adversely to his will. And so we asked the first real prominent question this morning. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about that all of salvation goes back to the man that's in the middle. So let's ask the question. If the man on the left reviled the word of God, that he lived adversely to the will of God, can you and I be saved if we live like the thief on the left? That's a good question, isn't it? I believe the Bible answers the question for us. In John chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved, watch this, darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Here's the man on the left. He reviled the will of God. He should have known the will of God because that's all Jesus did when he began preaching for three some odd years. We remember the Beatitudes and he told them how to live their lives and he told them that they need to be holy and chaste. Be ye holy, be ye perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. He wanted people to live for God. Why? Because God gave us everything that we have. Turn in your Bibles. To Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. God instructs his people that we need to be different. We need to live differently. We need to think differently. We need to show the world that we are the servants of the Most High. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11, the Bible says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Who was that grace? That was Jesus. He was born into this world with one purpose, to show us how to live, how to be reclaimed back to the Father. Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. There it is. If we want to know the purpose of the man in the middle, if we want to understand why Golgotha plays a prominent role in our salvation today, we need to look at why Jesus came to give up his life. He didn't live and die and was raised again on the third day by his father in heaven so that Archie Green or anybody else can live haphazardly in this world. Do we realize how many people in this world Number one, aren't in a religious setting like this. Number two, that are out there living their lives any way they want to. I'm going to give you one secret why they do this. And those of you that have the paper, I thank you for following along and also the verses. 
The reviler represents the first group we're going to talk about this morning, and these are the people that believe in grace only. See, grace only, simply put, is God had a son. He sent that son to earth, born of a virgin. He started his ministry around age 30. It went about three years. At the end of that time, he was called a blasphemer. He went to the Calvary's cross. He died, and he was raised on the third day. And because he did that, John 3, 16, I'm made free. Now, let's be honest here. Any good student of the Bible knows that John 3.16 is in the Bible. And it does tell us that Christ died for our sins. But the question on the format today is, can we be saved like the reviler because of grace only? Because Jesus died for me. The first answer to that question is no. I can't be saved only just because Jesus died on Calvary's cross. Many of us, even in this room, believe I'm going to be able to go to heaven regardless of the way I live, regardless of the way I think, just simply because Jesus already paid a debt, right, that I could not pay. We sing that song every once in a while. Jesus did pay a debt that you and I can't pay. But we can't be saved by grace only. There's no principle in the Bible to support that. If we can't be saved like the man on the left, my left, your right, then Archie, maybe we can be saved like the man on the right, your left. When the Bible talks about in Matthew 27, 44, that there were two thieves, one on one side and one on the other, the other man, most of us are probably more familiar with. There is no biblical New Testament character more infamous after Jesus, Paul, and possibly Peter than the thief on the cross. And I want you to notice that. You always hear people talk about the thief on the cross. Didn't we already conclude that there were two thieves? Why is it that nobody wants to admit that there were two thieves on the cross and you never hear anybody say, I want to be saved like the thieves on the cross? Maybe we already know, Sister Nicholson, that the man on the left doesn't hold any salvation whatsoever. So let's look at our Bibles again in Luke 23, verses 40 and 41. The Bible says, but the other, the man on the right, the repenter, answered rebuking him saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation. You called him a blasphemer. You know that he's going to die. You're going to suffer the same death. How can you sit up and ask him for a favor when you're in the same situation? You ever been in a situation where you know you're wrong and you know you're going to be wrong? And it doesn't matter what anybody has ever told you. And then you try to get somebody to be wrong with you. We used to use a phrase called misery loves company. There's a lot of people that want to be wrong and be in their wrong. But every once in a while, Ben, there's going to be one person, maybe a couple of people, they're going to raise up and say, you know what? I was wrong at first, but here I, 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 want, to, I want to admit something. We're wrong. Watch what he says at the end of the verse, verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, the man in the middle, has done nothing wrong. I, I want to admit to you this morning, brothers and sisters and our dear friends, there are times in our lives when we realize we're wrong, and the best thing that we can do is repent. We ask God to forgive us. And I want you to watch what happens next because uh, uh, Jerry led us a song a little bit earlier talking about the grace of God. And, and, and here is Jesus who is our intercessory. He, he is our mediator between God and us. He is the one that goes to God on our behalf and he makes things right just like he does here. He says, then he said to Jesus after he, he reprimands his friend, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, Watch this. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful because as we started off talking about salvation, I could live most of my life wayward, contrary to God. But when the light finally comes on, I can sit up there and ask God for forgiveness. And he is more than willing to forgive me of my sin. I wonder how many of us in the assembly this morning have asked God for forgiveness for the things that we've done? Are we hanging on to them like the one on the left 
And we're basically going to say to God, God, you're going to save me no matter what I do. Instead of being humble like the man on the right who figured out, regardless of his situation, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, maybe for some reason it clicked into his mind and said, you know what, you're in a desperate place, you have no way to go but up. You need to try to get God to fix this. Because in the situation that you're in, you can't fix it yourself. Maybe this came to his mind. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, this is a familiar verse. For godly sorrow produces, some of your translation says, works repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Notice the man on the right, he had a regret about the sin that he had done. But his friend on the left, watch the last part of the verse, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The man on the left didn't want to come out of his sin. The man on the right did. Which one are we today? Which person are we going to be? Maybe he also had an opportunity while he was in life to hear the words of the master. In Luke chapter 17, verse 33 through 36, the Bible says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. In verse 32, the one right before his, he says, remember Lot's wife? This is what he's talking about. He's talking about everybody on the face of the planet has a choice to follow God or not. In verse 32, he reminds them, everybody should have known, do you remember Lot's wife? In the Old Testament, the Bible says, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for sin, the righteous were led out, but one of them decided to turn back. When she turned back, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Why? Because she loved sin. She loved darkness. She loved what the world was offering her more than the promise of God, which waited in the mountains. Life eternal. Don't be like Lot's wife. Here's another point. We don't have time to work on this one this morning, but the latter parts of this verse, 35 and 36, unfortunately, the world uses this to so-called prove the rapture. We can't use these texts out of context. Here's our second question this morning. If I can't be saved like the man on the left, the reviler, maybe I can be saved like the man on the right, the thief on the cross. Not two thieves, one. And here's where we really want to spend some time this morning, brothers and sisters and dear friends, because I believe that there's a travesty in religion when it comes to how some people believe that we can be saved. Here's the question. If I can be saved like the thief on the cross, then there's several things that I need to consider. And I want to appreciate and say publicly, I thank Brother Chris Emerson for helping me understand this a little bit more. And I give him credit for these next three slides. The first thing is if I can be saved like the thief on the cross, then I need to be following the Old Testament. And there's a reason for that. The reason being is because God sent his son born under the law to fulfill the law. So everybody who died on this side of the cross to the left, they were governed under Old Testament law. What are you saying, Archie? Well, what I'm saying is that the law was given not to the Gentile, but to Israel. Turn in your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want you to look at something. Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 1, And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. Okay, great, I got that, Archie. Move down to verse 3. Let me rubber stamp it. The Bible says, The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Who is that us? Israel. Those who are here today. Were you and I the Gentiles there in that day? Did God give us the promise? Did he give it to our forefathers? Did he tell us that that law of Moses would contend until the end of time? Or did the law become our schoolmaster? It was for a purpose. It was to lead us to Christ something better, 
something more accomplishing, something that wasn't dead, something that was alive, that would make alive. If you want to be in Christ, the law served its purpose. But I believe the Bible is clear that that law, when it had served its purpose, it was nailed to the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, the Bible teaches us, starting in verse 11, it says, In him, Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What's the, what's, the, what's the burden of the man in the middle? What is the purpose of the man in the middle? Watch verse 214. He says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to what? Golgotha's cross. The law which governed the salvation of the thief on the cross was nailed to the cross. When Jesus went into the grave and he came up on the third day, having all authority in heaven and earth, the law of Moses was done away with. And if we go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul argued with the New Testament Christians of that congregation that if you want to go back to the law, then you've made the law of grace none effect. You've nullified it. You can only be saved under the law of Moses, or you can be saved under the law of grace. Then you make your choice. Because what Paul is telling us is that the law of Moses is dead. So how can it save anybody? If you want to be alive, if you want to go to heaven, and you want to spend an eternity in the bliss of God's hand, you got to be made alive through Jesus. You cannot be saved by dead law. This next one, I think also is very simple. I could be saved like the thief on the cross if I was hung on a cross. And I'm not trying to be coy here. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. But, but, but sometimes when you are out there and you're evangelizing, you're asking people about their salvation, and you ask them, are you a Christian? And of course, everybody's going to say they're a Christian. Almost everybody's a self-identified Christian to some degree. But when you ask them, how were you saved? And they say, I was saved like the thief on the cross. And you come back, not trying to be funny, but you ask them, were you hanging on the cross when you were saved? See, you have to be. Because when Jesus turned to that thief who asked him to remember him when he came into paradise, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief didn't come off the cross until when? He was dead. So Jesus saved him by his word on the cross. And we know he had the authority to do that because in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, when they were trying to raise the paralytic man and he had dissenters in his area, he simply said, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, take up thy bed, rise, and walk. He told him because he could. He was God in human form. He could do whatever he wanted to do. So while he was here on earth, when he told a man he was saved, he was saved. When he told a man he could be healed, he was healed. When he told a man he could walk, he could walk. When he told a man he could hear or see, he could hear or see. Jesus is not here physically today or yesterday or tomorrow. He's not going to come back. He's sitting on the right hand of his father's throne. If I want to be saved like the thief on the cross, don't I have to be suspended on a cross? Again, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to get people to understand rationally if you want to be saved, like the thief on the cross, you got to go back to the Old Testament. You got to live according to the 613 commands that God gave Israel. You got to be hung up on a cross and, watch this, you have to reject Jesus as Lord and you have to reject everything that Jesus taught us what to do on this side of the cross. Now, this is horrible because unfortunately, there's a lot of people in a religious world today that believe I can be saved any way that I want to be saved. As long as you believe in Jesus, as long as I believe in Jesus, as long as you believe in God, as long as I believe in God, we're all good. 
That sounds great on paper, doesn't it? But just like you couldn't be saved by grace only as a reviler, the man on the left, you cannot be saved by faith only like the man on the right. See, a lot of people, they want an easy, convenient salvation. And they will sit up there and say, Archie, all that man on the right had to do was say that he believed in Jesus. And you know what? They're exactly right. That's what he did. But the statement this morning is, we can't do the same. We cannot be saved like the thief on the cross. So we come to our main character, the man in the middle, the son of God. The Bible tells us that he is preeminent in all things, that he is our mediator to our God in heaven, that there is no other name under heaven that's greater, Acts 4.12, that he is the one that we must believe in, John 8.24. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John came professing that him to be that light, and people still got it wrong. And I simply say this, brothers and sisters, because some people don't want to be redeemed. And I'll show you why. This is what Jesus said after he came out of grave. And he made this pronouncement for all ages, which includes 2017 and until the end of the world. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now ask yourself a question. Here is the pattern of righteousness. Our Lord, the one that people say is his king, he tells you from his very own mouth, how do I get to heaven, Doretha? How can I sit up there and say, there's another formula? See, either you believe Jesus, you either trust in God, you either want to be faithful to him or you don't. He says, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, here's the next thing that you normally hear. But aren't you the thief on the cross wasn't baptized? Well, first of all, that's a poor argument, isn't it? Does anybody really know if the thief on the cross was baptized? Can we prove that scripturally? We can't prove that he wasn't. In Mark chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible says that John went about baptizing all of those that came out of Jerusalem. He could have been baptized. He might not have been baptized. But isn't it a poor argument to sit up there and say, well, Archie, I'm not, I'm not going to be saved like anybody else because here's, here's, this guy was up on the cross. He couldn't have been baptized. And you're right. He wasn't baptized. But he did trust in God. And he showed his trust by believing in his son. That's the formula. Don't you find it interesting that there's no place in Scripture after Jesus comes out of the grave that anybody says from Acts to Revelation, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Have you found that interesting? Nowhere in Scripture anybody says, hey, hey, save me like the thief on the cross. And there's no apostle of God, no Christian that tells anybody that you could be saved like the thief on the cross. Here's the next thing you normally hear. But aren't you, aren't we saved by grace, not by works? Baptism is a work. You heard that one before? That's a great statement. Watch this. We are saved by grace. We absolutely are. There's no doubt about it. There's no contradiction whatsoever. But here's what you got to understand. What is the definition of grace? Some people misconstrue that. Watch the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I want you to notice that most people say that we're saved by grace, want you and I to believe that we're saved by grace only. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us something very simple. It teaches us at what point is a person saved. It teaches us at what point is a person free from sin. And I'm going to tell you that at both points, the answer to this question is we're saved by grace. Watch how the Bible puts it. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Watch again the last part of the verse, verse 10. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the ultimate question and why people use the thief on the cross for salvation. They want to sit up there and say, Archie, I don't have to do anything in order to be saved. This is why a person comes to a religious setting and they sit on a pew. They might sing. They might not sing. They might give. They might not give. They might listen to the sermon. They might not listen to the sermon because as long as Jesus died for their sin and God is sitting in heaven, I don't have to say or do anything for my salvation. I want to prove something to you with the time I have left. Please bear with me. I thank you for your attention so far. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is teaching to the church at Corinth. He says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea, and, at, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. There's two great points here. Paul reminds them of an event in the Old Testament. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. And let's watch this prove out. Most of us remember that God remembered Israel's cry, Exodus chapter 3. And he sent them a deliverer, Moses. And he told them what to do in order to be saved. In Exodus chapter 12, in order for them to avoid the angel of death, they had to do something. They had to place the blood of the firstborn above the arch of the door. Now, simple common reasoning says if they believed God, they would have put blood over the door. Why? Because I wanted to be saved. I had to do something. I couldn't just sit back and be saved by belief only. I couldn't just sit back and be saved by grace only. I had to be saved by grace through faith. It's not a work of my own volition. It is a work of righteousness created in Christ Jesus. When? Before the beginning of the world. So we get to chapter 14. And I want you to notice that God tells them that when they get up to the Red Sea, that he's going to stir up Pharaoh and he's going to prove his reliance and faith through his people. In verse 10 of Exodus 14, the Bible says, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so that they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, that you taken us away to die in the wilderness, why have you so uh, dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Watch what Moses says next. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Isn't that grace? Isn't that the Lord speaking? You don't have to fight yourself, he says in the next verse. God is going to fight for you. That's grace. But you got to do something. What do you got to do? You got to cross the sea. Now, if we're looking at it from our human eyes, we see this water that is unpassable. Just like we see today. God can't save me because my life is so rotten and I'm so bad and I'm such a bad human being. God can't save me. My wayward life in that Red Sea are comparable. And just like God is going to show his mighty hand and save Israel, he can save me. And here's the key that we have to make sure we understand, dear friends. It's the same process. In verse 13 and 14, and Moses said again to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. I've given this little illustration here, and I hope, again, you bear with me on this, because I'm trying to be as clear as I possibly can. Here was Israel, and this may not be totally accurate, brothers and sisters. I'm not a historian, so y'all bear with me. I know there was a sea, and I know there was two sides. How's that, okay? On one side was Israel in Migdal. God wanted them in Baal-Sephon. 
in order to get from Migdal to Baal-Sephon, where God wanted them to give them the, pro- the, the promise that he made, they had to cross the sea. Here's a simple question for all of us. At which point in this diagram were the children of Israel saved from the wrath of Pharaoh? Were they saved in Migdal where they already were? Was that where God was going to save them? Was he going to save them in the sea? Or was he going to save them on the other side? All of us in this room, even our youngest children, can understand this concept. There's at three different points we could have been saved. Just like the three characters we have in our text this morning. There are people that believe God was going to save them and do nothing. There are people that God is going to save them and do the wrong thing. And there were people that believed that God was going to save them and cross to the other side exactly how God told them to do it and therefore be saved. And I think you would agree with that. I want you to watch what happens. Go over to verse 22 in verse 14, chapter 14, excuse me. The Bible says in Exodus 14, 22, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Go to verse 29. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and, watch this, believe the Lord and servant Moses. Now here's the question again. Were they saved by faith only? Were they saved by the goodness of God's grace only? Or were they saved by grace through faith and allowed them to get where God wanted them to go? I believe the answer is simple. And go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for this answer. The Bible says those that wanted to be saved, they had to pass through the sea They had to be baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and into the sea. All throughout the Bible, God gives us a provision of what salvation is, and it includes exactly what we find in John chapter 3 when he talked to Nicodemus. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. The children of Israel believed God. Why? Because they walked across on dry land. Let me ask you a simple question. If we, uh-oh, if I would have stayed in Migdal, would I have been saved? I believe God. He's going to save me anyway, right? What about if I would have went into the Red Sea and just stopped there, put up my tent? Would God have saved me there? Or do I have to believe God, take him at his word, and go all the way across to the other side? Because everybody that did not believe God, right? The Bible says they were swallowed up by the sea. And from that point on, they were seen no more. The Bible says in the New Testament, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here's the deal. There's somebody in this auditorium this morning sitting up there saying, well, Archie, I was baptized as a child. Somebody told me that we're born into inherent sin and somebody christened me and that made me right with God. So I'm good. Is that what the Bible teaches? Somebody might say, well, I was, I was baptized as a teenager. I didn't really know what I was doing, but somebody told me to go up front and say the sinner's prayer and invite Christ in my heart and I'm going to become a member of this congregation and that's what I did. I really didn't understand what I was doing, but I'm okay. I've been baptized. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Israel obeyed God because they understood what God was asking them to do and they crossed the cross on dry land. And everybody that did not believe stayed behind and they died. We have something similar in 1 Peter 3 verse 21. There's also an antitype which now saves us. I want you to just simply watch the vocabulary here. Baptism. Baptism now saves us, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience, a good conscience. I know what I'm doing. I know God's promise to the faithful. God told me through his son, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Why? Because he wouldn't believe. If a person doesn't believe, he's not going to act on it. 
If a person is not going to believe, he's going to sit in that pew every time the doors are open, and he's going to keep telling himself, I'm good with God because God loves me so much because I'm so special that he's going to allow me to go to heaven, and I don't have to be obedient whatsoever. That's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible teaches that I can't be saved like the reviler. The Bible teaches I can't be saved like the repenter. The Bible says that you and I must be saved by the Redeemer. And here's a pattern of righteousness that's been all through the New Testament. From the day of Pentecost forward, it will go until the end of the age. When Peter, on that day of Pentecost in the first century, when he was asked the question, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to get sin out of my life? Don't we understand when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. A person has to understand why I'm being baptized. It's to have my sins removed. If you think you've already had your sins removed, and now you're being baptized so that you can be saved to show that salvation, you don't understand baptism. You don't understand how God saves. If we go to Migdal right now, Jesus would tell us those that stayed in Migdal were not saved because they didn't believe. Those that stayed in the Red Sea weren't saved because they didn't believe. Those that sit here in this assembly day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you don't come down that aisle and you're willing to give up that wrong understanding of what salvation is because somebody, a good person, don't get me wrong, a lot of us are influenced by good people and I appreciate their good hearts. But I can't agree with wrong doctrine, and I hope you don't either. God desires everybody to be saved, but you can't be saved on your own accord. You can't revile God's will and be saved. You can't repent only and believe you're going to be saved by your belief only or in God's grace only. You must be saved according to his will, by grace, through faith. And if you don't get anything else out of this lesson, look it back at 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to notice the last part of the verse. Somebody said one time before, it's estimated that there was probably a million and a half Israelites that crossed through that Red Sea. The last part of the verse says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Watch this, dear friends. God saved even the unfaithful that day. Why? because that wasn't in the things. God saved his people because they were going to be an example of God's love and mercy to the entire world, even to us today. But since the time of his son, when he came out of that grave, he doesn't have to do that anymore because his grace has been fully exemplified towards mankind. And if I want to be saved today, i got to be saved by grace, through faith, for the remission of my sins. When I believe that with all of my heart, I'm willing to make a change in my life. I'm willing to repent of a life spent like the reviler, and I'm willing to confess Jesus as my Lord, and I'm willing to go down in the watery grave of baptism, because according to Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, that's where I meet Christ's blood, the only thing that can wipe away sin. Just like in Exodus 12, when we put the blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death will walk by, we go down in the watery grave of baptism so the angel of death will go by. That's the example we have. You're not going to come up with a different example because there is none. If we want to be saved, let's be saved by grace, through faith. To those who have done this, I want you to really look at this last part of, the, of this presentation. Because I think some of us were remiss in believing that we as Christians, we can never fall away. That's a Calvinistic doctrine. A Christian can lose their salvation. We also have to make sure that we're living life every day. We don't get to take off time. Sorry. We need to be doing what God is asking us to do. As Roy said a little bit earlier, some messages are tough, but they're needful. Thank you, Roy, for saying that. We need to always remind each other, brothers and sisters, that the Christian life is challenging. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's very pervasive. But here's the thing about it. 
We ought to have joy. We ought to have honor in serving our Lord. And that everybody around us who's not of our precious faith, we need to be encouraging them. I'm thankful again for Charzel, who's asking about her ultimate eternal situation. But Charzel's not the only one that she'd be asking about that. Everybody in this room ought to be considering their soul. And the question of this morning is very simple. Since I can't be saved like the reviler, I can't be saved like the thief on the cross, what is it that the Redeemer is asking me to do so that I can go to heaven for an eternity? And here's what he said, real simply. Hear the word, believe it with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess him as Lord, and be willing to go down in that water where you meet his blood, you have your sins washed away, you become a new creation in Christ ready to start anew, a great life, a beautiful life, one that is right with God. And I can walk around with my head up knowing that Jesus is my Lord, God is my master, and I am where I need to be. I don't have to doubt it anymore. I don't have to be confused with what the world talks about salvation. I can be what God wants me to be. That is always going to be the message. And if we preach any other message than that, As Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, we need to be condemned. So we don't want to lead you astray this morning. We want to make sure that we're right because we need to be right all the time. We come to the time where we have our invitation. If you know you need to put Christ on in baptism, I hope you do so. I hope you're brave enough to step away from tradition and do what's right. If you are a Christian and you know you've fallen away, Now is the time to make sure that you're right with God. If you need prayers because you're struggling, if you want a Bible study, whatever it is that you need, the church is here for you. And let's make that known while we stand together and sing the invitation song. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace.